At the end of your life, what will be your legacy? What will you leave behind for future generations? For the world, join the world messenger, Isabella Lundberg, each week as she brings you a new distinguished guest from the business, sports, or entertainment world to share their success, their struggles, and their lessons. They will share their insights into current hot topics that affect everyone. Isabella facilitates an intimate, vulnerable environment to find the true value of humanity and real leadership. Are you ready for your legacy? The legacy that matters? Hello, hello, my beautiful friends. It's Isabella Lundberg here, DeLord Messenger, and I have exceptional guests here right now with me in the studio that I cannot wait for him to share how he co-founded E! Entertainment TV Networks and stay current and relevant in industry for over 40-some years, I believe, Larry. Without further ado, let's hear from Larry Nimer. Hey, Larry, how are you? Hi, thanks for having me. And um, I hate to say it, but it's actually now 50 years. So I've been in it for a long time. You are an absolute veteran, and it's absolutely great. Again, what an honor and pleasure to have you here, because since then you did so much. You've been involved with, uh, most recently with NFTs and different currencies. You've been after such a tremendous success in the U.S., extremely successful in the Middle East. I'm sorry, not Middle East, in Asia specifically, in Beijing and Shanghai. And you carved so much um, for generations to come just for e-entertainment. So what are you up to these days? And do you mind sharing a little bit how everything started? Yeah, well, I mean, e now is in 142 countries. Um, you know, and everybody talks about influencers. And I think you can make a pretty good argument that the number one influence in the world of pop culture is E. I mean, there's nothing. I think on any given day, E will reach 100 times more than all the influences put together, um, you know, which is pretty crazy. But, um, you know, it, I got involved literally right out of college in the cable business when nobody knew what cable was and all my friends said, don't do it because nobody will ever pay for television. But wasn't smart enough to listen. And that's kind of been my story is I'm, I'm never smart enough to listen to other people. So I just kind of go ahead on my own. And um, so I, I got into cable very early, but I got in um, thinking it was gonna be a temporary job until I figured out what I wanna do when I grow up. and. Um, you know, I was very fortunate in that I was at a cable company in, in New York that was building the first and only underground cable system in the country. And then um, Time Incorporated bought it. And at that time, Time was a publishing company. They did books and magazines and stuff like that. And they made a decision that over 10 years, they were going to like migrate and become a media company. So it was a great time to be there. I, I was involved in the early days of of urban cable and multiple channels and the launch of satellites and HBO and all of that kind of stuff. And then um, when all the big cities around the country started to realize that cable was something that they had to have, it wasn't just if you had bad reception, you needed cable. So they all started franchising and giving the rights to companies to build cable companies. Um, but they all wanted them to go underground instead of on telephone poles because it was pretty unsightly. 
you know, to be a big city and run the cables on, on poles. So um, again, a fortunate in somebody, a uh, big Canadian company won the franchise for um, Los Angeles, um, uh, but they had to build it underground. The only person in the country who knew how to build underground was me. Um, so, you know, I think I was 30 or 31. Um, I got the job of building the biggest Los Angeles two-way interactive cable system ever built. So I did that. But when I was doing that, I kind of, you know, you're a New York kid, you come out to LA and everybody's going to parties and premieres and all of this stuff. So I started thinking about how I kind of get invited to all these things. And um, the company that I work for sold out and they went back to Canada. And I said, well, I didn't go from New York to LA to go to Toronto. So my friend Alan Marufka and I, we just started kicking around ideas. And it was kind of at the very beginnings of MTV. And wow. we said, hey, you know, if if you could stand a host in front of a green screen and go, you know, and uh, Madonna has a new video, we could stand a host in front of a green screen and say, and Schwarzenegger has a new movie. So that kind of started our thinking. And then we involved it. <clears throat> you know, then you only had half hour shows that covered Hollywood. And, you know, for most projects, you know, if they got 10 or 15 seconds on Entertainment Tonight, they were happy. Um, yeah, but you had fans of um, directors and lighting and stunts and foreign films and all these things that never got any airtime. So we built a business plan, you know, that turned into E. I think at first we called it movie time. Uh, but then we realized that it could be broader and be all about the media and entertainment business. So we uh, wrote the plan, thought we were really smart. Three and a half years later, we realized nobody was giving us 60 or $100 million. And um, by, we met somebody on Wall Street who said, I love this. I used to be the entertainment reporter for my college newspaper and come by this afternoon and I'll give you money. And we were like, great, could you make it more like the 100 million rather than 60? And he went, well, no, I, I'm new at this job and I'm only allowed to sign for two and a half million. So I said, but it costs 60 at the very least. And he goes, well, I'm only allowed to sign for two and a half. <clears throat> Alan and I just looked at each other and said, you know what? We're smart, we'll figure it out. We took the two and a half. And I had um, a friend teaching radio, television, film in University of Texas in Austin. And I called him up and said, do you have kids who need intern jobs? And he said, yeah, I got a lot of them. It was hard to place them this year. So he sent 31 kids from Texas to Hollywood, and uh, we started E with 11 employees and 31 interns. So that's kind of the wow. story. What a story and how I love how resourceful you were and how you never deviated from your vision. And I love when you said you never listened to the crowd and what others are saying and kind of always did the teams in your own way. And it seems like that success consistently follows you because obviously you have to listen to your gut feeling or, 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 or just take a risk and, and go with that. Yeah, what would you when, say is the key ingredient for your success? When, when you're dealing with things that don't exist, like, you know, something like E never existed before. And then I got involved in internet content and uh, NFTs and metaverse. When you say to people, just imagine, 
they get lost. They can't imagine. What's in your head is only something that you understand where you're trying to go with it. So if you really believe in it and you've analyzed it properly, and that's the trick. I'm not a person who says, go with your passion. I think that's for a lot of people, they waste a lot of time pursuing their passion and it's not a viable idea to turn into a business or a sustainable business. So you got to be very honest and really self-reflect every night and going, okay, I had that idea this morning. Is it still a good idea this afternoon? And don't waste your time on things that can't be. Wow, that is such a great lesson. And I actually love that advice because you spot on a lot of people that chase their passion, but don't have a business savviness or, or experience, uh, don't necessarily evaluate that. And they just keep drilling over and over and they wondering why they're not getting different results. Yeah, so you know, the one thing you have that's finite is your time. And if you're chasing things that, you know, Maybe it was a good idea before, but the environment, the business environment changed or the technology environment changed or the political environment changed. And, you know, if you're not willing to be honest then give it up, if it no longer makes sense, at the end of the day, we all need to pay our rent and we all need to eat. So yes. if this idea, you're passionate about it, but it's not going to create enough income for you to be able to sustain and live and, you know, do all those things that all of us like to do, then, you know, you got to move on and find a new one. Such an excellent advice. And since like you were able to, from this amazing success, again, with e-entertainment and TV networks and cable industry, to then bring that on global scale and then also diversify and get a niche in specific emerging markets or new markets. Uh, do you mind sharing a little bit, because I am such a huge enthusiast on global scale of what is going on, and how did you pivot and found uh, opportunities where you are consistently succeeding and winning the market share? Yeah, well, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of our American companies or Western companies spend so much time trying to protect what is, as opposed to really thinking through and about what will be and being yes. able to let go on certain things and admit that times have changed or the market has changed. When I first got involved with uh, the media business and I used to do business plans, we would weight the, the financial models, 95% US and 5% would just be called other. Like the rest of the world was other, didn't even give you know, countries a name. You know, now if I do a model, a financial model for something, it's weighted 30% US, and then I have the Middle East, and then I have Asia, and then I have Africa, and I got South America, and, you know, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and, um, you know, the US is only 30% of the equation now, and, you know, seven, so why do something that's US-centric when the rest of the world revenue streams are bigger than, twice as big as the US streams. So I got involved. I did, um, uh, when I kind of stepped down from day to day of E, I wanted to play around outside of the U.S. So, you know, I always look where the big media companies, the, the Rupert Murdoch's of the world, you know, really um, haven't established a foothold and where I can compete with anybody, you know, just based on my brain power and my knowledge and all of that. So I, I went to Russia um, 
And I had actually, this is, I started a big charity there uh, called the White Nights Festival. And we donate 100% of the proceeds for the six day rock concert to the Children's Hospital and the Orphanage. Um, we haven't been able to do it for the last two years because of the Ukraine war. Um, but you know, that went 31 years, but I was, I was intrigued with the market and people really didn't have built up media habits and stuff. So <clears throat> I actually had um, the, the number one, it was either number one or number two, depending on how you measure TV show in Russia for 10 years, um, five days a week, 10 years, which was just nuts. Um, when we started, we were getting 80% audience share. So eight out of every 10 homes in Russia were watching what we, we gave them. And, um, and then I decided, you know, when I started to see Russia really changing and not being as fun as it was when I first started, I said, okay, China's next. I said, that's even a bigger challenge because, you know, Russia, I could at least relate to the people. Um, in China, it's like a whole different culture and uh, different, I mean, different language. And I mean, everything was just different and stuff. So I, I actually was invited into China by the, um, the Chinese government agency of the Chinese government. And they asked me, because they were moving from being this communist government uh, dominated media world to being um, more accessible to Western marketers who are you know, building the consumer economy there. And they asked me to work with young TV executives and quote unquote, teaching them the process of creativity for profit because uh, they never had to deal with it. I mean, if you knew the right guy in the Communist Party, you got a grant to do a TV show. There was no market research. There was no audience numbers and you didn't need sponsors. And if anybody watched it, you never knew. And if nobody watched it, you never knew. So I did that. And then they said, well, you know, we'd love to learn from you. Could you start a little media company here? And I went, well, you don't let Western media companies in here. And they went, well, you know, um, you know, I said, why are you going to be so nice to me? And they said, look, we have a fight with Rupert Murdoch. It's on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. We have a fight with you. We go out for drinks. We yell at each other, but tomorrow we're good. They go, for now, we'd rather do it that way. So we've been, you know, doing film there, TV there, internet content. We do a lot of brand development where a brand story is more complicated than what would fit into a 30 second commercial. So we build brands into stories or films or, or any of that. Now our big project is um, here in the US, it really took off um, immersive entertainment where you, had, you saw immersive Van Gogh and immersive Klimt and all of those. We're actually deploying those across China now. So we control uh, Van Gogh, Klimt, Nutcracker, 100 years of Disney animation, um, wow. and a few others. And, and you know, Chinese market is amazing just because of the sheer size. And, you know, I always kid, say, even when I do a TV show that's not so good, I get 50 million people to watch it. So that is amazing, again, trajectory and in learning how to pivot and how to find opportunities. But you mentioned something really powerful earlier, how industry starts shifting and changing and how you start changing and going in different merging markets. Do you mind sharing for everybody watching and listening, what is your take on now how TV is changing and where things are headed? Because we have now a lot of 
things happening even beyond theatrical releases and traditional ways of, uh, and we do have now streamers and a lot of disruptive new technologies and you were in the midst of that again. So do you mind sharing your perspective and what are you up to today? Sure, well, you know, the, the, the unfortunate part, not just about media, but any business is people fight to hold on to what was. Um, yes. I, I've never quite been like that. I'm, you know, I don't listen to 80s music. I mean, I want to know what happens after K-pop. Um, you know, so you got to be very forward thinking, going, you know, okay, where is the cons where consumer behavior going to be in two years, three years, four years, five years, 10 years, and really start planning for that. Uh, I mean, just look at the music business. I mean, it's a great example. For years, they decided they were going to not let digital music happen. And you can't do that. When it's good for the consumer, eventually it's going to win. But with TV, you know, early on, you know, even when Netflix was still just sending DVDs out, I, I said, you know, it's very, very simple. The technology will change and enable a whole bunch of things. And from a consumer point of view, I'll ask this simple question. Do you want to watch what you want to watch when you want to watch it? Or do you want to watch what NBC wants you to watch when they want you to watch it? We all know the answer. So it's just how long is technology going to provide that, you know, total on demand kind of thing, any screen, any time kind of thing. And there was no question in my mind it was going to happen. Um, and it did. And, you know, Netflix was out there. And, you know, then the, the attitude in the creative community was, if you were a filmmaker, you were on top. If you did TV, you were in the middle. And if you did that internet stuff, you were at the bottom of the barrel. And then COVID hit. And people, you know, couldn't go to movie theaters anymore. Production of theatrical films slowed down. And people began to watch things on Netflix and said, hey, you know, this stuff is pretty good. You know, so all those people were saying TV is over and the movie going is over. You, it's not over, you just got them in a different place through a different technology. And then Netflix became incredibly successful. And then, you know, Amazon said, hey, we could do that. And they yeah. started theirs and then Paramount Plus and Disney Plus and, you know, on and on and on. And now we have a bunch of platforms and for creators, um, you know, and I consider myself still a creator. <clears throat> it's never been better. I mean, I was looking at doing, I bought the rights to a book about the first and only woman ever to be the ruler of China. And I wanted to do it as a story in English. And I brought in top writer, I brought in Ron Bass and won the Academy Award for Rain Man. He co-wrote Joy Luck Club. And for three and a half years, we tried writing it as a theatrical film. Well, unfortunately, her life was so big and expansive. I mean, she went into the palace at 14 and she came out of the palace at 72 and all that existed in between. In the theatrical film, we never developed the characters to the point where you really got to know them or love them or hate them or, you know, whatever, you, where you felt something. But now, you know, with the Netflix and the Amazons of the world, we could do this as a miniseries, a la Game of Thrones, where we really get into do character development. You take Game of Thrones, Ozark, you know, any of these things. It's an incredible palette for creative people to paint on now. Mm, you're spot on and, and I'm just being able to know uh, in which genre or which way is the best to tell the story and it seems like you consistently have this amazing 
uh, niche where you know what great TV stor uh, stories are to be told. And in all these different markets through all these different channels, I mean, just the fact, as you were mentioning earlier, that you developed a long-standing series and, and episodes in Russia, and you did the same thing replicated in China with 70 episodes running of the show there, and then comedies and all kinds of awards as a result of it. And now obviously putting things in perspective in the current time. So where do you feel like things are headed specifically when you now also play such a huge role in NFT space? Do you mind the picking a little bit for audience that is on the fence, not clear what all this means? Um, what, are you, what is your take about that? And how is that fitting with entertainment space? Sure. You know, I think NFTs and blockchain and the metaverse are all part of the equation. They don't replace the equation, but they're, they're a partner. That will be a significant growing part. So you know, I said, I have to really throw myself in and get to learn it and immerse myself in it and stuff like that. So I learned a lot. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, you know, I watched the award shows. I watched the Golden Globes and the Oscars and I, I was appalled. Um, I, I didn't, they just never changed over 75 years. They never adapted the changes in the environment. I mean, they're still a US centric thing. They never brought in new technologies. <clears throat> um, you know, you could argue they were not uh, inclusive or diverse and stuff like that. And then when they decided to be, they were almost apologetic for 75 years of bad behavior, which made the shows boring. Yeah, my feeling is, is that achievement should be recognized, regardless of where it came from, regardless of the color of the people that made it, you know, the best should win. I mean, is there a way that we could take new technology and start creating the framework where the best of the best of the best get recognized? And you know, in the NFT world, in the blockchain and the metaverse, creates all new opportunities. So myself and a guy out of the tech world named Chris Snook, who's a tech entrepreneur, we decided that we're going to launch our own award show. And it's called the Nifties, NFTYS. And, you know, if you want to look it up, it's nftys.org. And, yes. um, and really saying, okay, what was wrong with those shows, or at least what we think is wrong with those shows, and how do we make it better? And by bringing in all this new stuff that's available, they're tools. And so uh, first we're going out of a studio on June 14th out of a studio in Las Vegas, and it's gonna stream worldwide. Yes. In order to watch it, you need to get a, an NFT, which is a token, which will let you watch the show. And, you know, so it may be cheap, like $5, you know, to watch it. And, you know, but if you want the, the red carpet and it, it's $6. If you want the red carpet, that and uh, the, the after party, it's $7, you know, very cheap. But just to establish the thought that this tokenization, it, it basically gives you access to different levels of, of experience. Um, so that's, that's fun. And then um, also, I have some friends that are really big designers. Uh, so my friend Richie designs for Katy Perry and Lady Gaga and uh, Paris Hilton. So for one of the hosts, he's gonna design her clothes. But we're gonna be able to mint an NFT live while she's wearing them while the show is out there. 
And um, then I have music acts that are going to sing, you know, um, unique versions of their songs that they own. And we're going to be able to mint those and somebody you could own, you know, that version of that song as an NFT. And if that artist takes off, your NFT is worth a lot more money. And, and the artist makes money all along the chain, which is key to it, uh, why I like NFTs. And again, it, it, it's a very simple equation. People right now confuse, you know, what happened with Sam Bankman-Fried and all that fraud stuff. Yes. Uh, they confuse that with what NFTs and blockchain are and the metaverse are, and it really is two totally different things. I mean, look, Maddox, uh, Bernie Maddox defrauded in the stock market. You know, Sam Bankman-Fried was a bad actor and, you know, he found an opportunity to take advantage of people and he did. <clears throat> it doesn't mean the technologies are wrong. It means he was bad. Um, but you, um, but, you know, and again, I like simple examples. So if you're an artist and you paint a painting and you sell it to me for $100, you're thrilled. You got $100 for your painting. But I sell it to my friend for $1,000. Now you're sitting there going, Hey, I made that and I only got 100 and he just made 900. Then he sells it to a museum for a million dollars. Now you're like, oh my God, I made 100 and now I have just $100 and now somebody's made 900 and something thousand dollars off of my work. Yes. But when you do NFTs and you, you issue smart contracts and you record it on the blockchain, every time that piece of art changes hands, you as the creator are going to get 10% of that sale. So now you, you're staying with the, the revenue stream of your work for as long as that work continues to change hands. That could be um, writing music, it could be writing TV shows, it could be writing film, any artistic work. So as a creative, how could you not like that? I mean, so brilliant. it's going to be in that it's going to be inevitable. And again, it doesn't replace the old systems. It supplements them and makes them better. Mm. And creates and crafts unique experiences because we all crave something exclusive or different or new. And you're able to create something remarkable. And I cannot wait to see what you're going to do in yeah. in Las Vegas. Well, one of one of the most interesting things that we're able to do is, and we're also bringing in artificial intelligence for a whole bunch of things. So our host will be standing, you know, on the stage, and behind them is 1,250 screens. In front of them is 1,250 screens. But those screens, is, it's all built, it's a Zoom platform on steroids. So the host is able to turn to any screen and go, so Isabella, what's that painting behind you? And now you could have a dialogue with the mm -hmm. host of the show, real time live, you know, which when you think of a music artist, they, they go to a concert hall and they're playing in front of 30,000 people in a basketball arena, but the lights are in their eyes. They never see who their audience is. Now they're going to be able to turn around and talk to their audience. They're going to not only see them, but they can talk to them. Um, and, you know, so we think that's very cool. But the other thing that really excites me, so the host is going to speak in English, but by using an AI program, when the programming goes into France, the host is speaking in French. When it goes into Spain, he's speaking not just Spanish, wow. but Spain Spanish. When it's in Mexico, he's speaking Mexican Spanish. 
So uh, like no latency, it's his lips are moving. And as far as you're concerned, he's talking French, which is incredible because it really makes it a world event. I mean, again, when I watched the Academy Awards, my favorite film this year, I mean, the film that won, I thought was okay. Um, you know, I didn't think it was great, but it was, it was okay, it was good. But there was a film that came out of Germany called All's Quiet on the Western Front, which was spectacular, spectacular filmmaking. And I looked at it and said, this is by far the best film of the year, but it's not gonna win because it's German. And, mm. you know, sure enough, you know, it gets thrown, you know, uh, we look at it and we give one category, best foreign film. Well, there's a world of films out there that are really good. And, you know, we should be celebrating them the same way. We should be celebrating the best of the best, no matter where it comes from. I am so much with you. And I love how amazingly you disrupt and continue to disrupt the status quo and changing the lens that we look at. And I can't even say how much in agreement I am uh, with uh, what we become over 75 years of consistent uh, limiting uh, platforms where we can truly, as you said, not only embrace, but also learn and truly be entertained, right, in a different ways. And we live in global economy. We should be living also in a global entertainment space. And that's, and that's where, really you know, building. NFTs and metaverse really help facilitate that because they are global in nature. Amazing. So I really wanted to, first of all, acknowledge that you not only lived and led your legacy, and you already left tremendous legacy decades ago, and being veteran in industry and, and subject matter expert and consultant around the globe for major countries and consumers of obviously TV shows and whatnot. I'm curious, what would you like your legacy to be? First of all, what, what is the next? I know you fulfilled it a million times over, um, but what's still left in that bucket list and your dream for you to make it happen? Well, you know, I think, I, I mean, several things. Um, you know, if I get remembered for anything, you know, I, I really believe that our purpose on earth is to leave it better than we found it. Um, in every way, you know, with people, with planet, with animals and stuff, we're here to make it better. We, we need to give our kids a better world than we came into. Uh, and then that, that should be our goal. But, you know, for me, you know, I'm in China now, I'm intrigued with Africa. Uh, I think Africa is going to be another, you know, great place, you know, to, to do stuff where you don't have built up habits. You know, you don't have to break down the habits. You have to expose people to new stuff and, you know, see what they want to do so you know that's that's important to me and I you know now I'm doing um I, I call it my social responsibility uh era I just developed a series that I'm actually going to be pitching to Amazon soon called conscious parenting which when you think about what it's like to be a parent in today's world I mean it's very different than 20 years ago when I was born my Mother took me home from the hospital. My aunt lived next door. My grandma lived upstairs. She had people to help her. Now kids get, you know, they go off to college, they get married, they have a kid and you go to the hospital and they hand you this baby and they go, here you go. And there's no support systems there. And, you know, how do you, you have so many issues and you have school shootings and bullying and gender ID issues. And it's, be, it's really gotten harder. 
to be a parent. So with a woman named Catherine Celery, who does all these TED Talks on parenting, I developed a, a 48 part TV series that we hope Amazon decides that they got to do something good for the world and, um, and stuff. So doing that, I, I created another one for um, uh, financial wellness for millennials, particularly young women who don't get any practical training. Um, you know, and, um, you know, and that's how we ended up in the, you know, the, the, the college loan crisis that we're in is, you know, people just don't understand the implications of some of their financial decisions. So I just did that. I'm working on a, a documentary with some friends for LA um, that really is meant to bring light to the incredible rise in anti-Asian hate crimes that have happened ever since our president called this the China flu. Um, mm. you know, it's up like 800%. I mean, it's not a good thing to be Asian in America these days. It's, uh, you know, because mm. every, everybody just thinks uh, anybody who's Asian is therefore Chinese and therefore is responsible for COVID. And, um, you know, it's criminal. Uh, you know, I mean, all you got to do is look at the history of this country. This country is built on immigrants who come here and work their butts off, um, pay their taxes. And, you know, they're trying to, lead, you know, raise their kids up in education and all that. And yet, you know, we have people yelling at them in the supermarket, go back to your country. You know, I don't want them to go back to their country. I want them to stay here and do good stuff. Um, so I'm doing a documentary mm -hmm. on that. And then work them. Richie Rich, who's a designer, who's like heavily into the LBGQI plus community, um, helping them build a communications content platform for really the fringes of that. You know, these, these kids who are going through the gender ID issues, they can't talk to their parents, they can't talk to their friends, they can't talk to their teachers. And you look at the suicide rates and it's incredible. You know, somebody needs to give them a place where they could find people of like mind and have open, honest discussions without repercussions. And so I'm helping them build that. And, um, you know, so that's it. Oh, my goodness. I, first of all, just have to say you are amazing to open the door, to transform, to continue to advocate and support. And someone who came in this country, myself as a refugee, who endured a lot of crazy stuff and started working very hard and being worse for voiceless, immigrant community from all over 120 plus countries worldwide. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, deep gratitude for addressing all these very, very important topics. And um, again, for a tremendous contribution to the world that you already established. I just cannot wait to see what else is coming because you are not slowing anytime soon. And that is amazing and admirable to see, Larry. You know, my, my choice is, you know, people say, why don't you slow down? You don't need the money. I said, you know, but then what do I do when I wake up? Go play golf? No, I, I, that's not for me. I don't do that. I like what I do. That's, that's very evident in your work, in your success, in your collaboration and partners around the world. And I cannot wait to see what else is coming so that we can, again, bring you back and share, but also obviously to support you with so many beautiful initiatives that we are partaking. And it's just always beautiful to see veterans in industry and great mentors and leaders like yourself. But before we close for today's Legacy Leader Show, I really have to ask you, who was the most instrumental, Larry, in your upbringing 
to really have this such a strong sense of confidence in yourself and take this tremendous risk because you are amazing risk taker and that got you to your greatness well in in many ways it would be my mom um who was really you know she got me into doing like you know scrabble and you know doing just all that kind of stuff and you know she's great but i will say and it's a shame she passed her you know about five years ago but um when i would come up with my dopey ideas she would literally smack me in the back of the head and go shut up you know einstein well a few years ago i actually got put on the um the board of the einstein foundation um which i thought damn you know if she was only here i could rub it in you know but um but you know that was it and then when i was in time inc i i had um a manhattan cable a uh, guy that timing put in his president who later went on to become the president of all of time Warner, a guy named Nick Nicholas and Frank Giano. Those are my two big mentors. Yeah. And then, you know, Manhattan Cable, I had Nick Nicholas, who was the president of Manhattan Cable, went on to become the president of all of time Warner and Frank Giano, who was my direct boss. And they really instilled in me, you know, a good set of corporate business skills and understanding, which has helped me as an entrepreneur because it enables me to know how those big companies think and what their process is and stuff. Um, you know, I, I say, you know, if anybody says, what's your skill? And it's, um, I say, it's, I learned how to run under the legs of elephants without getting crushed. Um, and, you know, that's it. I'm able to play the game against those guys because I know the way they're going to play the game. So, you know, it makes it easy. And, you know, in Hollywood, I'm a, I'm a bit of an aberration in that, you know, I'm, my school training is in economics. I'm a creative. So I'm a creative who knows how to read a balance sheet, which is dangerous. And then I had a lot of experience in the tech world. For two years, I was the primary consultant to Bill Gates, Microsoft for strategy. Um, so wow. I really got to learn, you know, about how all those techie guys work and think and and what they could do and you know and and that's really what's enabling me to think about what's in even if it doesn't exist is it inevitable and can it exist and stuff like that and if you could imagine it these you know those smart little kids could build it that is outstanding and such a beautiful again upbringing and persistence and opportunity that you gifted now so many people around the globe uh, for decades. Uh, So first of all, I just wanna again, thank you for opportunity to speak with you and share. And in closing, if you could just advise anybody that is truly struggling, trying to define and figure out what they want, who they wanna be uh, when they grow up, (laughs) what would be piece of advice for you? Uh, for well, them, I'm sorry, from you. I, I'm still trying to figure it out. I don't know if you ever really figure it out, but you know, again, it's the most important thing you have, and we all have the same issue. It's time. I mean, there's nothing we're going to be at. We're all we have a set time on this earth, and you got to maximize the use of that time and stuff. And you know, you can't let your ego get out in front of you and go, "Well, that was my idea, so I'm going to stick with it no matter what." And, and end up spending a lot of time on things that can't be or shouldn't be. And instead of putting that time into those things that really could be something. And again, sustainability. Uh, 
we all have this thing that we got to eat. We like paying the rent. And if what you're going after is not going to enable you to do that, and you don't have to do it at the beginning, but eventually it has to, then you're not going to be able to sustain it because sooner or later you're going to have to eat. You're going to get married. You're going to have a kid, whatever. Um, you got to make sure they could eat. So life takes over. And leave us positive review whenever you are listening on whatever platform there might be. Make sure your friends and family also know about the benefit and value that we provide and what we have to offer. Cheers.